Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. At the UPS Store, we know things can get busy this upcoming holiday. You can count on us to be open and ready to help with any packing and shipping or anything else you might need. Is there anything you can't do? Um, actually, I don't have a good singing voice. <clears throat> the UPS... Nope. But our certified packing experts can pack and ship just about anything. At least that's good. The UPS Store. Be unstoppable. Most locations are independently owned. Product, services, pricing, and hours of operation may vary. See center for details. Come in today to get your holiday goodies there on time. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In November 2014, in the wee hours of the morning, a baby was dropped off at the entrance of an Atlanta-area ER hospital. Struggling with respiratory problems, he clung to life. Despite attempts from hospital staff to revive him, the child, 15 months old and weighing only seven and a half pounds, was pronounced dead. The staff immediately suspected child abuse, and the police investigation into the child's death led them to a man who took guidance from Dwight York, the leader of the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. Except York had been in a prison in a federal supermax facility since 2004. So we ask, how could a man locked away still have so much influence? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. Today we return to Dwight York and his united Nuwabian nation of Moors. Last week we explored York's life and the events leading up to his 2004 imprisonment for child molestation. This week we'll zero in on his followers and explore why, even until this day, some still support York. But before we dive in, we'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Cults on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. In the previous episode, we covered the rise and fall of Dwight York, as he grew his following into the present-day Nuwabian cult. Originally formed in 1968, the cult numbered at least 5,000 at its peak in the United States alone, and had international followings in Canada, the UK, and Jamaica. In the early 2000s, York was arrested and charged with 13 counts of racketeering, improper financial reporting, fraud, rape, and child molestation including transporting minors across state lines for the purpose of sexual acts. He was later convicted on 11 of the 13 counts. Originally influenced by Islam, the Nuwabians came to see York as their savior, brought to lead them home to salvation. That home is the faraway planet Rizq. According to the Nuwabian doctrine, black people are descended from a highly intelligent alien who crash-landed in ancient Egypt. 
York, they say, will help them return to space and regain their former glory. While their current exact number isn't known, in the years since York's sentencing in 2004, membership has dwindled. The Georgia farm compound that was their promised land, Tamaray, was seized by the government and sold in 2005. Most of the group's businesses have closed, and yet a small force fights on the internet to keep York's story alive and recruit members. And we ask, why? One of the problems with a character like Dwight York is that much of the attention focuses on the sensational elements of his rise to power. The funny Egyptian costumes, the pyramids, and the grandstanding are all certainly entertaining. And the events of the Tamaray raid play out like something from the movies. But they are real, and so are his victims. That's who we want to focus on in this episode, on the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. A lot of former cult members don't come forward to tell their stories for fear of being gawked at. They don't want to only be known for the infamy of the group they were a part of or their off-the-wall beliefs. They want to be treated like humans. The Nuwabians are unique in that they have many former members willing to give us first-hand stories. Today, we'll share some of them. Please note that some of their names have been changed to protect their identities. We'll take a laser lens to the daily lives of York's followers, and Vanessa will help us understand some of the psychological trauma they endured. While Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, she's done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. First, let's go back and see what membership was like when the cult was just starting to grow. Back in the days when the New Albians were known as the Ansaru Allah community. Back to 1973. That's when York bought the Bushwick Brooklyn Mosque that became the cult's headquarters. He later expanded, purchasing 20 apartment buildings for his growing number of followers to live in. In the previous episode, we discussed how York required his followers to give up their worldly possessions upon joining the cult. Men and women, including married couples, had to live in separate dormitories in these Brooklyn apartments. Of course, York's own wives and esteemed members of the Mujahad, the cult security force, had the privilege to live with their families. They also ate better quality food while the rest of York's followers subsisted on beans and, in a twisted Dickensian way, gruel or oatmeal mush. York often feasted in front of his starving followers. In an interview with one of York's harshest critics, Bilal Phillips, ex-member Abdul Mutual Muhammad, who joined York during the AAC days, recalled, quote, I remember on one occasion he ordered some eggs and bacon, and he didn't like how they looked, so he shoved the plate to me, and I ate them. They brought him some more eggs, but he did not like the way they looked, so he shoved them over to me, too. He was playing games, but the third set of eggs he liked, end quote. It was a joke to York, watching his followers catch his scraps. And as we've noted in previous episodes, starvation is a common way to control people. And when they weren't offered scraps, York's followers had to beg. They wore secondhand clothing and were often forced to use torn stockings in place of menstrual pads. Since they had no money of their own, they were required to submit request forms for simple items like toilet paper. York's followers had to walk through bureaucratic hell in order to get the most basic of items. New members lived in packed rooms. Wafia Abdallah, who joined the AAC in 1979 at age 19, described it as, quote, 
When I entered the community, we lived in a building that was called New Sisters Quarters. There were some beds, but not everyone had a bed. The rest of us slept on mattresses, some on blankets, and some on sleeping bags on the floor. It was very crowded. The only time there was space to walk around was in the daytime when everybody got up. We stayed there for the orientation period, which I believe was about two weeks." End quote. Once the orientation period ended, York's followers were split into rooms where they shared a kitchen space and a bathroom with up to six adults. Emphasis on adults. Because children also lived in their own separate dorms. Their living conditions weren't any more comfortable than those of their parents. One of York's former followers recalled seeing 18 children in a room and three babies sleeping in a cradle meant for one. New AAC members had to fill out a questionnaire before being invited into the cult. Questions ranged from inquiries into their finances to explicitly being asked, quote, how do you feel about being separated from your children, end quote. Like clothing and money, new cult members were told to give their children to York. They didn't belong to only their parents anymore. They also belonged to York. He would be like a father to them. Last week, we discussed how York slowly stopped performing and recognizing marriages in his cult by 1980, a time when cult membership was about 3,000. York decentralized the family unit with tactics like controlling spouses and separating children from their parents. According to cult researchers Michael Langone and Gary Eisenberg, quote, the cult's hierarchical structure and its setting itself up as family turns parents into middle management, end quote. The same way husbands needed permission to see their wives, parents needed permission to see their children. Scheduling visitation was made even more difficult due to the fact that men and women in the cult worked all day. Between the various rental properties and businesses, York couldn't do it alone. His followers provided free labor. Women cleaned, cooked, and helped publish York's writings, approximately 450 of the booklets he called scrolls. Men had strict quotas for selling these scrolls. Eventually, they were forced to beg for change. And if they didn't meet quotas, they'd be punished. Not only with physical abuse by the Mujahad security, but also with further restrictions on seeing their wives and children. Contributing to this separation was the fact that children also had their own chores, and York watched the AAC kids like a hawk. The cult's children had restrictions on their movements and curfews. However, an exception was made for Dwight York's children, who could stay out in the street and play. And by the mid-80s, Dwight York was doing well enough to take his own biological children on international trips to the Middle East. Such was the discrepancy between the master teacher's children and his followers' sons and daughters. This was a red flag for Raisa Muhammad, who was involved romantically with one of York's AAC followers, but never fully joined the cult. She said, quote, I didn't like being told that I couldn't visit with my children except at certain times of the day, end quote. Abdul Mutual Muhammad, who we quoted earlier about the food cult members were given, finally left the cult in the 80s because of this division. His wife was the first to escape. Her last straw was seeing one of York's wives in the clothing she'd been asked to give up when they first joined. To encourage Abdul Mutual to leave as well, she reminded him of York's trespasses. He said, quote, 
She reminded me about the clothing incident and that I couldn't see my children. She said, they run past you and go to Dr. York and greet him before they greet you, end quote. Yet many of York's followers were willing to overlook these conditions in order to give their children an education based in Islam. A reminder, until 1993, York's teachings were based in Sudanese Mahdi Islam, and he created a school to teach the cult's children about Allah. The fact that their children would learn Arabic was a source of pride for early members. Ex-member Sadiq Mohammed, one of the first members to join, said this is what kept York in power. Quote, you should hear them, the children, recite Quran. He dangles the children in front of you. Where else in America can you go and the children speak all Arabic? End quote. York didn't only keep the education to Arabic, he also created his own language, Nubic, which later became known as Nuwabic. York would eventually claim that Nuwabic was the language spoken on planet Risk, but it started out as just a dialect. Like York's other ideas, it evolved over time and contained three parts, the Nubic dialect, the written Nuwabic form, and the spoken Nuwabic language. The language also highlighted York's trademark plagiarism. Lacking creativity, York mixed Arabic, ancient cuneiform writing, and ebonics, or African-American vernacular English, A-A-V-E. English words like television became spelled and pronounced tell-lie-vision, gospel is a ghost spell, and instead of simply understanding things like the Dunya outsiders, York and his enlightened followers overstand. The Nuwabic written form also borrowed heavily from ancient Egyptian hieroglyphics, with symbols connected together by a line, as in Sanskrit and the phonetic scripts of India. The spoken language, influenced by Egyptian Coptic, had an alphabet whose pronunciation is very similar to that of the Roman alphabet. For instance, B becomes Be, C becomes Se, and so on. Yet this new language wasn't just an arbitrary creation of York's. It was another method to control his followers' thoughts, a method that created a psychological line in the sand between the Nuwabians and those outside the cult for future battles to come. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And now, let's continue the story. 
Dwight York's control over his followers wasn't just physical, it was also psychological. In his research on the psychological damage done to American soldiers kept in prisoner of war camps during the Korean War, Dr. Robert J. Lifton described eight tactics of successful ideological control in his book, Thought Reform and the Psychology of Totalism. One of them was the concept of loading the language. According to Lifton, groups alter their followers' way of thinking by creating simple new words and phrases for them to use. They often include thought-terminating cliches, terms that often sound true but aren't, and that discourage independent thought. Lifton said, quote, Involved is an underlying assumption that language, like all other human products, can be owned and operated by the movement. No compunctions are felt about manipulating or loading it in any fashion. The only consideration is its usefulness to the cause, end quote. So Nawabians aren't simply Nawabians due to membership. They also think and talk like Nawabians, creating in-group solidarity and pride against the outside world. It was us versus them. Yes, it's this pride that's key to the cult's longevity. York gave them a sense of identity, something that many of York's followers never had before joining the group. One former follower, Mariam, spent the first seven years of her life raised by white guardians. She joined in 1983, at age 22, at one of the cult's Canadian branches in Montreal. Although she left after one year, Mariam said York opened her to a new world. She said, quote, "...being raised in a white family and knowing everything about white superiority, it made me feel good to know Jesus is black. The first man, Adam, was black." I intended to go the full length, to get involved strongly, end quote. Another follower, Abdul Halim, didn't speak of York so fondly, but admitted, quote, Black people in our country don't have an identity, so he comes in with his black Sudanese thing to give you an identity. You feel bad about yourself as a person, and he comes with this philosophy. It kind of bowls you over, end quote. It was the cult versus the non-believers, and the cult versus the government. York constantly tried to prevent city officials from scrutinizing the cult. Remember how York pocketed his followers' welfare checks? To keep getting funds, cult members on welfare had to pass monthly inspections from the city welfare office. York made them transform the dormitories to look like clean, traditional apartments. Children were reunited with their mothers in order to pretend they were normal families. But York couldn't always fool them. In his interview with alternative and new religions researcher Susan J. Palmer for her book, The Nawabian Nation, Black Spirituality and State Control, York's son, Jacob York, recalled how he didn't learn English for the first 10 years of his life due to only speaking Arabic and Nawabic. In 1984, an anonymous complaint tipped off the welfare office, and child services discovered that English wasn't being taught. Threatened with having all the children taken into foster care, York promised to supplement the children's education with English instruction in the cult school. But the threat also made York paranoid. This paranoia is probably why York always seemed two steps ahead, controlling his followers like chess pieces. Because in the year before the 84 check on the children's education, York had purchased the land his victims say was the setting of their nightmares. Initially billed as a summer getaway camp for AAC's children to escape from the concrete and projects of Bushwick, 
Camp Jazzer was York's 1983 expansion into upstate Sullivan County, New York. However, his victims said instead of lakefront cabins and bonfires, the children lived in mice-infested trailers with loose flooring. York lived in a mansion. Far away from adults, except camp staff, York's victims said Camp Jazzer was where the molestation began. York used the children's desire to be reunited with their families against them, promising visitation with their parents if they let him touch them. He also promised them better meals, clothing, and living conditions, inviting those who acquiesced to stay with him in his mansion. The abuse didn't stop when the AAC was forced out of New York to avoid an FBI investigation into the Mujahad's intimidation tactics and illegal gun purchases. In fact, the abuse increased when York moved the group to Eatonton, Georgia, in 1993, the year the Ansaru Allah community rebranded as the United Nuwabian Nation of Moors. The cult's compound, Tamaray, became their new prison. One victim spoke of a Building 101 at Tamaray near York's mansion on the Georgia compound. It was the space all the children knew York only let his favorites live in. These favorites were the children York sexually abused. A Nuwabian woman, then 28, testified that she helped groom children for sex, including her younger sister. She described a bedroom in the building that included a hot tub sauna in which York would perform the sex acts. The woman said grooming began with York inviting victims to watch one of the videos in his extensive pornographic VHS collection. After viewing the porn, York would ask the children, both male and female, if any of what they saw interested them. Then he'd make them watch him have sex with another adult, including the 28-year-old woman who testified. This forced the children to get used to the idea. Despite her complicity in the abuse, this woman received immunity for her testimony because she too had been a victim of York. Joining the cult while they were still based in Brooklyn, this woman said she was 13 when York molested her at Camp Jazzer. She, like other victims, became normalized to the abuse. They didn't have the knowledge to discern the truth because they weren't socialized to do so. Exactly. In their research essay, Children in Cults, Michael Langone and Gary Eisenberg wrote, quote, children born into cults or brought into cults at an early age do not have a mature pre-cult personality to awake. They're socialized into an environment that denigrates independent critical thinking and maintains members in a state of dependency, end quote. The Nuwabian children didn't know any better, so what else could they have believed? Everyone around them said York's word was the word of God, and he used it to his advantage. Another victim, the younger sister to the 28-year-old groomer, said York told her, quote, submitting to his sexual desires was her ticket to heaven, end quote. To submit to his abuse was supposed to be an honor. He also allegedly warned them not to tell their parents, threatening violence. One 16-year-old girl who'd been forced to perform oral sex on York as young as age five testified that York threatened to kill her and toss her body on the compound if she ever went to the police. Which makes me wonder, maybe Nuwabians defended York because they didn't even know their children were being abused? What if York's seemingly arbitrary rules for living arrangements were actually his way of covering his footprints? We know parents in the cult rarely saw their biological children, and York's victims said they were either afraid to tell their parents or persuaded not to. 
he created a double-blind scenario. Both groups were oblivious of York's manipulations. Mm, or maybe not. Maybe that's just one story. Maybe there's another simpler story, one favored by the FBI and federal prosecutors. That story is that York's followers were afraid to stand up because to do so would mean rejecting their decades of investment into the cult. Remember, the Nawabians spent 10 years in Putnam County battling their neighbors, literally, with acts of vandalism and threatening ads in the local newspaper. They protested what they felt were racist zoning laws, restricting development on Tamaray. They struggled to gain political influence in their new Georgia home, campaigning for and eventually losing local elections. They survived an FBI raid on their compound. Many feared would be as deadly as the Waco siege on the Branch Davidian cult. So if the Nuwabians turned their back on York, then everything they fought for would have been a waste. Not to mention it would mean rejecting the new, empowered identity York had given to them. Despite York moving away from Islam and changing his origin story in 1993, the alien myth was better than the Nuwabians' reality. Well, what's more palatable? We were brought over in chains, or we were chosen by aliens from the planet Risk to have superior knowledge to lead. Mm, they had to believe in the lie because it was better than the truth. This is what Professor J. Gordon Melton wrote about in his book, The Cult Experience, Responding to the New Religious Pluralism. Melton said one element that affects membership attachment to each other or a charismatic leader is a term he calls remythologizing. Members re-examine their identity and create new ones because it helps them deal with a conflicting worldview and dealing with an uncertain future. In the minds of the Nuwabians, white people were devils who oppressed black people in order to thwart black genius. Believing in a future paradise in a galaxy far away allowed the Nuwabians to reinvent themselves. It kept them hopeful while living in an oppressive society on Earth. Right, yet to do so, they had to become the oppressor and, at least through ideology, make white people their inferior. Hmm. They flipped it, the same way they flipped words and ideas, until they believed whites were evil. He gave them an idea that bonded them together, hope. A hope that their realities would one day match their statements of superiority, that maybe one day they would be beamed back home. It may all be make-believe, but this is the exact emotional bonding Rosabeth Moss Cantor describes in her book, Communes and Utopias in Sociological Perspective. It's a bonding that allows a community to stick together despite being removed from its home, being sued, or even being sent to jail. After York was found guilty of child molestation in 2004, the Nuwabians had to decide whether it was worth it to leave behind the community they built. Remember, a lot of these Nuwabians lacked education and skills if they grew up in the cult. Or if they joined as adults, they've been out of society for over two decades. Many Nuwabians' familial and job connections had been lost to time. Some of them had been with York since the 70s and had passed down the faith to a second generation. Faced with the daunting tasks of starting their lives over, they would rather stay put. If they left the group, they'd have nothing, be nothing, alone. In the cult, despite the conditions, they were somebody. They were valued. They felt their contributions, cleaning and street peddling, actually made a difference. But here's another thing to consider. 
York's 2004 imprisonment may have legitimized his ideas even more. In her writing on commitment mechanisms for these type of communal groups, Rosabeth Moss Cantor listed sacrifice as one of them. What greater sacrifice could York give than turning himself in to save his followers from further scrutiny? Not to mention that the group had a long and powerful list of enemies. Former members, the FBI, the Putnam County Sheriff, and now a federal judge. And to the Nuwabians, the equal match for someone as powerful as Dwight York. Those enemies, the Nuwabians said, were threatened by York's ideas. They were too dangerous and threatened the status quo, they said. So, of course, to them, York had to take the fall. The defense says this is something of a conspiracy by the government to bring down the Nuwabians because they're different. And they also say that this whole thing is kind of a conspiracy also by the leader, Malachi York's son, who is not on good terms with his father. And so they say that York's son got together with some of these victims to frame his father. When researcher Susan J. Palmer first visited with Brooklyn Nuwabians in 2003, the year before Dwight York went to prison on a 135-year sentence for child molestation, she asked a member when she first met York. The member replied, quote, I met him in a dream. She meant this figuratively, that she was asleep before she encountered York, and his teachings made her woke. With his guidance, she came to overstand the world. To Palmer, obscuring themselves after years of FBI and media investigations was a means of survival, because York's followers would soon face their own legal issues. We'll return to our story in just a moment. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by the Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. This episode is brought to you by Rakuten. Are you ready to shop? Rakuten's Big Give Week is back. Get 15% cash back at hundreds of stores, including headliners, Ulta, Ray-Ban, and Canon. Rakuten is how in-the-know shoppers get the best savings. They shop the brands they love and earn cash back on top of deals during Big Give Week, May 6th to May 13th. The cash back rates are even bigger. I'll be shopping for Adidas and Fenty. You can save on everything you need for summer, like clothing, outdoor gear, and travel. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cash back boost. That's an extra 10% cash back on top of Big Give Week's 15% cash back. You won't see higher cash back rates than these. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app. R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. And now back to cults. In 2004, Dwight York was finally behind bars on a 135-year sentence for child molestation. But his followers still had the hope he instilled in them. Hope in themselves and hope in York's innocence. They said that despite York being imprisoned, that they're still going strong and they're not planning on going anywhere. Their hope was encouraged by messages York sent from prison. Among other things, the letter said that he was visited by three visitors from outer space who healed an illness he had. 
He also said he's been levitating, which impressed the other inmates. Two years after York's sentencing in 2005, the Nuwabians sought an appeal in the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. 200 of his followers protested outside, but it wasn't enough. The court upheld York's conviction. Also that year, the U.S. government seized the Tamaray compound and sold it to cover a tax lien. The Nuwabians moved to Athens, Georgia, where York had built another mansion. In 2007, the Nuwabians protested outside Macon City Hall in Georgia, not only to get York's release, but also in support of four Nuwabians who had been fired from their jobs in the Clark County Jail. Rena Jennings, Anthony Montgomery, Bobby Dixon, and William York were accused of recruiting prisoners to the Nuwabians and urging black inmates to riot against white jailers. Deputy William York, who was not a relative of Dwight York, he had changed his last name from Warren in 2004 to protest his master teacher's jailing. All four deputies appealed Clark County's decision, but only Dixon had his job reinstated. Jail officials say they fired Dixon for violating the employee code's command to be willing to act. But at his appeal, Dixon pointed out his only error was a failure to remove a pro-Nuwabian sign from an inmate's cell. Another deputy later removed the sign. The personnel hearing officer ruled that Dixon's code violation should have resulted in discipline, but not the firing. Still, the Nuwabians continued to protest the firings, including a 2009 demonstration at Macon City Hall. That same year, a group of cult members sent false documents to officials at the Supermax prison holding York to get him released. Those documents had forged notary stamps and claimed that York was actually a Liberian diplomat and he had immunity. According to the Athens Banner Herald, they also claimed he was being held illegally under the Geneva Conventions, naming him a prisoner of war. But this, of course, was far from the truth. The Nuwabians were yelling at the wind. Their protests, or antics as many called them, were futile. And only brought further scrutiny to themselves. In 2014, then 44-year-old Calvin McIntosh brought his toddler to an Atlanta-area emergency room. He was in a panic because the 15-month-old had stopped breathing. Unfortunately, doctors pronounced the child dead on arrival, and that's when police began their investigation. Hospital staff noticed the child was severely underweight for his age and passed the age range for SIDS. They reported it to the authorities, who then tracked McIntosh to the motel he was staying in, just northeast of the city. Inside the motel room, they first only saw four people, McIntosh's daughter and three other emaciated children. Later, investigators learned two of them were the products of incest, McIntosh having raped his own daughter. They began collecting evidence, noting there were several books and pamphlets from York and the Nuwabians. McIntosh later claimed membership in the cult. And then they saw it. A small bundle at the floor. Wrapped in a blanket was 20-year-old Aisha Sweeting. She weighed only 59 pounds. The facts came flying into police. Not only was Aisha the mother of one of the children found in the motel and the toddler that passed, but she'd also been missing for over four years. Aisha disappeared during her sophomore year of high school in DeKalb County, Georgia, in the Atlanta area. McIntosh kidnapped her. And over the next four years, he raped and starved her. Even sadder, the motel where they found her was only 15 miles away from her school. 
McIntosh later claimed membership in the Nuwabian cult, possibly one of the Nuwabians who abandoned their Athens Lodge in 2008 to relocate to Atlanta. Remember, Jacob York, Dwight York's son, who helped prosecutors bring Dwight York to justice, had operated a halfway house in Atlanta for members who wanted to escape Tamaray. Fortunately, Aisha's story has a happy ending. A year and a half after being found, she finished school, graduating with her high school diploma. Now 24, Aisha uses poetry as therapy to tell her story. This is remarkable, considering she not only had to relearn how to walk, she also had to relearn how to talk. According to the New York Times, she said, quote, I need my poetry in order to survive, just like I need oxygen and I need food. I need poetry. It's more deeply rooted in me than I ever would have thought, end quote. In her poem, Discovery, the complete her story of the self-soul, Aisha speaks of the struggle to adjust. She describes the journey as a constant battle, but unlike before when she was held against her will, she's in control. Her poem reads, quote, I am a woman who takes responsibility, unbound, unbound, unbound. By spells of inability, I'm on an inward, upward climb, while others are struggling, scraping, hustling, and on the grind. I stay alive. I don't settle. I satisfy. Aisha's happy ending didn't come with the end of the cult. In 2016, half a dozen Nuwabians tried to force themselves into York's Supermax prison in Colorado, nicknamed the Alcatraz of the Rockies. They were promptly escorted off the federal property. Last year, in 2017, a five-year-old was found with bruises and burns on his body. His abuser? York's own son, Ramses Richardson, born Prince York. Ramses was still involved with the Nuwabians and has a YouTube channel, Prince York, dedicated to the cult's beliefs. Well, yes, York's ideas lived on, but his ideas were dangerous. The cycle of abuse continued. The Nuwabians were taught to emulate York in every way, but as we documented previously, he was a narcissistic, insecure man who would lord his power over the people around him in order to make himself feel bigger. The Nuwabians learned from him that strength comes from abusing others. Although these arrests may have reduced the numbers, they also pushed Nuwabians online, with websites and forums dedicated to Dwight York's teachings. Some assembled evidence of York's innocence, despite the fact his innocence does not exist. Others post messages, both written and audio, from York detailing his life in prison. These websites are how they organize events worldwide for the Nuwabian diaspora. As recently as New Year's Eve 2017, a group of Nuwabians in Queens, New York, held a ball to ring in 2018. Online is also where you'll find the administrative wing of the Nuwabian nation's government. In the years since York's arrest, it's expanded to include a cabinet based on that of the United States of America. While York's seat as chief has been filled by one Naya Asaru Aman El, according to the government's website, the majority of his cabinet seats remain empty. While York may be replaced, he's not forgotten. On Change.org, there's a petition to get President Trump to either pardon or commute York's sentence. Fortunately, if you sign it, you don't also have to sign over your children. At least for now. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. 
If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And once again, thank you for listening. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Joel Stein and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Morgan Collins and stars Greg Paulson and Vanessa Richardson.